You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 2 of Another Name for Everything, casual conversations with Richard Rohr, responding to listener questions from his new book, The Universal Christ, and Season 1 of this podcast. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And I'm Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst adopting stray cats, rocking out to queen with my kid, and the shifting state of our world. This is the sixth of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we're addressing your questions on the theme of embodiment. How do we live into this incarnational worldview? Well, Richard, today we are going to talk about embodiment and all the different manifestations and conversations that come up when we begin to think of ourselves as incarnate, as embodied beings. And there are some themes that came up a lot as we sifted through the questions. And one of them was around the energies of masculine and feminine. So we want to kick it off here with this question that deals with the feminine and masculine from Susan from Oak Hill, Virginia. One of my biggest spiritual challenges is the tension between the masculine and feminine forces in my life. Richard addresses what I believe to be the gifts of both. How can we, and is it still possible to, hold these gifts of disharmony while also seeking to find reconciliation and transformation in the period of waiting? What a lovely phrase, gifts of disharmony. Tells me she's got it already. Uh, she's coming to the reconciling third, which is at the heart of everything uh, we try to teach here at the center. That if you let things stay at their static, male, female, you're never going to get very far. They will become competitive and oppositional. But a gift of disharmony. You need a little asymmetry, a little offness on to be recognized on both sides of any equation. And that hopefully calls both of us, first of all, to some humility about what we know and what we don't know <laughs> and who we are and who we're not, and leads us to what we might call the reconciling third. Uh, that's why I think this whole discovery of gender. I mean, National Geographic had an issue, which is not a lightweight magazine, you know, uh, with genders and pictures of various people who all looked like human beings. Uh, but their stories inside, I didn't read it in depth, but were revealing things that uh, certainly when I grew up, I mean, I didn't even know the word gay. Well, it wasn't common in the 40s and 50s. But then we move into transgender, <laughs> cisgender. And e each time you've got to find the definition of it. It's just like coming into a whole world of mystery, which is undeniable once you meet a person. My gosh, where have they been? How did they suffer? I especially think that of of uh, transgender people. 
how did they suffer in previous history? Now, my suspicion is the use of that word eunuch in both the Old Testament and the New Testament was already that biblical recognition. There are peoples who are neither one or the other. You see this much more visible and accepted in India, where they walk around uh, openly effeminate, like the native peoples had the bird ash uh, here among the Navajo, and one of our Navajo brothers told me this. Uh, instead of this person being excluded, they were considered to be the higher, just the opposite of us. They were considered to be the more likely the medicine man in training or medicine woman, healing woman. So my, what, what has been exposed in the last 30 years to show us how utterly ignorant we were. And it's as good an example of anything of the dualistic trap. I know I must feel like I'm beating it to death, but you just see it again and again and again. And so I love this phrase that Susan uses, the gift to hold these gifts of disharmony. It's asymmetry that, that uh, makes something beautiful. We were just talking about Japan before we started recording and what a, a aesthetic culture it is. I, I got to give a number of retreats there and they love the asymmetrical. You'll hardly ever have, if you're walking to a private home or a park, or any, you'll never have an angular sidewalk. It must be curving. Mm. <laughs> it's not efficient at all. And then in those curves are planted trees and rocks that are asymmetrical. It's nothing like the French garden or the English garden that's, you know, very symmetrical almost obsessive symmetry if you go to European gardens, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just the opposite, no? Everything is a little bit of surprise, like nature itself is. I mean, we'd all have to admit that every tree, if we look at it long enough, is asymmetrical. There's never a perfect balance. So, um, gender is emerging in our time as a huge, teaching tool uh, for about ourselves and about the world and one another. And maybe that's why there's so much pushback, although it's lessening, at least in our culture, uh, every year it seems, as the undeniable is becoming undeniable. <laughs> yeah, But I just keep thinking of the suffering that people must have gone through in my huge collection of aunts and uncles, 14 on one side, 12 on another, I now am pretty certain there was a gay and a lesbian aunt or uncle on both sides. I don't think that would have ever entered any of my family's mind. They didn't have a concept for it. But they never married and they ended up being rather good caretakers for my grandparents, and it was a wonderful gift, but what sad and lonely lives they must have lived. Uh, because they were lonely, I'm sure. Because mm. uh, the idea of going out for a night with a friend, 
There was no such thing as that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seems as though that denial of the body that we've so adhered to in Christianity, ironically, yeah. being a, you know, a, a religion all about incarnation, we've yes. been so yes. disembodied for so long that that denial of the body has created so many deep wounds and problems for us. Um, not just as Christians, but as human beings, because I think Christianity has impacted so much of society. So you oh. see this kind of mind-body split mm. and a denial of our physicality. Um, it makes me think of that, um, that line from Mary Oliver, like, you know, when she says, I, I want to let the soft animal body mm. love, oh, yes. love what it loves. Love what it loves. Uh-huh. It's just, uh, yeah. those words hit, so deeply because i think she describes it poetically so well the soft animal body there's like a a return to a compassionate view of oh yeah Mm -hmm. these vessels that we're operating in are expressing something Mm -hmm. important and sacred yeah that's i have nothing to add i think that's so well said (laughs) 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 my mouth was just open i mean I, i i think i mean part of that that speak into that complete acceptance of just the fullness of humanity, which mm-hmm. includes these different energies, right? And mm-hmm. the way that I think, particularly in the West, Christianity has said, stay in your lane, you know? This is what a man looks like. This is what a woman looks like. And, then, mm-hmm. and there's it's nothing in between. Yeah. yeah. And even to think about for those who identify as cisgender men, how do you incorporate the feminine when masculine cu- culture is telling you no no this is what a man looks like you need yeah. to aspire to that and what he does to his behavior his family roles all determined ahead of time mm-hmm. yeah and then we walk around living half lives because right. we're only identifying with half of ourselves half of the at energy best. at best yeah, at yeah. best so segueing then into this next question um speaking to the division between mind and body and the messiness of bodiliness that we often would rather not look at. Vicky from Perth, uh, Australia asks an, a really amazing question. She says, since engaging in menstrual cycle awareness, where I track my cycle and what is happening to me physically, emotionally, and spiritually, something deep within me has been awakened. I'm beginning to be more in tune with my inner voice, with God who lives in me. I feel myself as more of a woman more incarnate and more fully, I can feel more fully the Christ presence. And I am more aware of a divine feminine. Our body as women has a natural rhythm. It reminds us that there are times to play, create, to love, to initiate, but there are also times to rest, to let go, to speak truth and be still. My faith has taught me, my faith has taught me that, but my body is teaching me in new ways. I would love to see more Christian theology and teaching around this area the embodiment of the universal Christ in a woman's menstruation. What does Sophia still have to unfold for us in a more open discussion about this kind of embodiment? Well, who am I as a man? Richard, do you want to give some reflections (laughs) on menstruation? Who am I? I have a lot of experience Uh, in this area. (laughs) Oh my gosh, just her saying it so gently and kindly. You know, there's no accusation, there's no shaming, there's no, uh, it's just, I'm discovering something and it's good. Mm-hmm. But most of us, of us were given such an aggressive stance of denial and repression mm-hmm. toward our body. Mm-hmm. To come back out of that, 
and to say embodiment is good and is a teacher. This is just a whole new, whole new kind of Christianity. Yeah. I have that quote somewhere in the book, don't I, by, from uh, Katsantzakis. Someday Christianity will discover the other part and honor the body as well as the soul. If you find it in a moment, you can okay. read it. It's at the beginning of some chapter. <laughs> I forget, forget what I wrote. Uh, uh, One of the things I so appreciate about her question and the way she asked it is that you can see that for so long, and especially as women, we've been taught to feel shame about shame. bodiliness. And it's been a tool of oppression. It's been a tool of, of um, keeping, uh, keeping us disconnected from ourselves and disconnected from each other. And, you know, I mean, Vicki, you're already doing this. Uh, I feel wow. like you're already giving us a Christian theology on the embodiment of the universal Christ in our cycles, even the way you're describing that, that there are times to play, to create, to love and initiate, but there are also times to rest, to let go, to speak truth and be still. And I think that's one of the things that um, so many of us are longing to plug back into, even when we talk about the desire to be more connected to nature mm -hmm. and seasonality, yes. it's that we realize that there's a natural rhythm to life and that there's, um, we're extremely unhealthy in our culture and how we live and how we work and how we think that we don't respect that natural rhythm mm -hmm. and flow mm -hmm. that we're not giving room for letting go. Mm. We're just pushing, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve. Mm. So, um, yeah, the, the rhythmic quality of our cycles, I think has a lot to teach us mm. as the cyclical nature of everything in nature does as well. Yeah. We thought of the body as only the shell, you know, it's only the shell. And so there became a dismissive quality to it. It's going to die, therefore it isn't worth looking at or trusting or, or listening to. We just found the quote, it's on the beginning of chapter 9, from Nikos Katsantzakis, his marvelous book, Report to Greco. And he says, one day the religion of Christ will take another step, another step forward on earth. It will embrace the whole man, forgive his uh, exclusive language, it will embrace the whole man, all of him, not just half, as it does now in embracing only the soul. Hmm. Only the soul. Yeah. And you hear me say in the book, why do we say body of Christ, body of Christ? Hmm. And we tell people to eat it which is, in, I think, intentionally meant to be shocking, sexual, cannibalistic, mm -hmm. use all the shocking words, and to get us beyond this. But that's why you've heard me say for years why my history professor said we were more influenced in many ways by Plato than by Jesus. And that sounds like a terrible overstatement, but when you think about it, it's pretty true. <laughs> body was bad, spirit was good, because body died. <laughs> and that body led us on the journey, and the body was the place of the, the training ground, the school of suffering, of, of delight. Uh, but we always thought of it as the shell instead of the participant. It wasn't making the journey with us, 
as an equal teacher. Uh, so this is one of those many things that tell me we are still in early stage Christianity. Yeah. When it comes to that, Richard, of the split that is often even just celebrated between the body and the soul in, in religious culture, how, what would you offer for those listening as ways to begin to cross over that split, uh, to, to see the wholeness of, of body, mind, and spirit, and to not disembody on this path of transformation? I remember talking, oh, this was in the 70s, back in Cincinnati to a marriage and sex therapist. I don't know what I was talking to him about. I wasn't married, but uh, maybe he came to me for something. But he said that um, he had to counsel couples in the middle of their life, middle of their marriage, who the spark had gone out of it, there wasn't much affection or whatever, to uh, spend time, deliberate time, touching one another with no movement toward intercourse. Simply the gentle touching at great length, you know, looking, perhaps speaking, you know, but stop this goal toward ejaculation in the male case, especially your orgasm in the female. It's just, this is good. This is the body of God. And uh, he claimed uh, to me personally, he says, the, the results of people who do this over a period is astounding, just astounding. Because they rediscover embodiment in an in inherently respectful way. That this is good. This is the body of God. This mm -hmm. is uh, something that is an end in itself. But he said he had to take away the end of orgasm and intercourse so that we could discover the medium is the message. Yeah. Yeah, see, uh, that the body in its capacity for delight, for affirmation. And, you know, you think of what's happening in our, thank God in a way, but this, the Me Too movement, the, I mean, do you listen to the news a single night where the word sexual abuse mm -hmm. is not used? <clears throat> it's it's just we're tiring of it, yeah. but it, <clears throat> it's almost. I I think the body's revenge, <clears throat> and not being affirmed, validated, and seen as good, it has come out in sick ways, in power hungry ways, in abusive ways. Yeah. But now it's overwhelming us. Just it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't know if I ever used that word before, but it does feel like the body's revenge on the spirit and the soul. Uh, if you're not going to honor me, I'm going to get your attention by showing how sick the body can become, mm -hmm. how angry the body can become. And I think women are way ahead of us on this because they've been on the painful end of it again and again seeing that this man is not loving me. <laughs> and to call this lovemaking is just a total <laughs> abuse of terminology. You know? It's interesting that, that we forget that these ideas of separating mind, spirit from body, or body from soul, 
are just abstract theories. Mm -hmm. We've somehow decided that that's, you know, a concrete reality. Then we operate from that reality. And, uh, you know, your phrase, the body's revenge, it's almost like we're seeing the results of that unhealthy philosophical framework. And I just wonder, uh, for me, when I read the way you talk about the return toward an incarnational worldview, it feels like so healing and such a concrete response and a direct response to the gap that has been created by all of these splits. Splits. All of these, you know, there's this, there's this, and there's that. And, you know, they, they don't interact. And, you know, I just, I don't know that that tripartite way of looking at being human is helpful anymore. No. And, and I feel like no. Christianity still relies on it so much um, that I think it's another one of those things that we're going to have to really heal and look at and uh, turn over if we're, if we're going to continue. We're yeah. at the end of a, a long period of, of an, uh, analysis over synthesis, hmm. where analysis was Split taking apart. things apart, setting them, you just said it, in your separateness, and working with it there. And now we know there's no such thing as anything living outside of an ecosystem of relationships. Mm -hmm. There we are, back with the Trinity again. Right, that's what just popped to my mind, was the way that you're unpacking the Trinity as, as this flow, right, that the distinction actually can be problematic at a, at a certain stage yeah. as you try to understand that. Yeah. Same thing with the, with the human, when we try to separate into three separate mm -hmm. categories. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... I'm always amazed by the way our theology reflects our anthropology in so many ways, oh, and yes. the way that that interplay, Very when, when one gets healthier, it tends to deeply impact the other. And I think your work on the Trinity has helped with that own owning of embodiment mm -hmm. as well, instead of the, that so. dissection. That even God needed embodiment, it seems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if let there be, let there be, and it all became forms of visibility, and the first day is let there be light. Mm -hmm. So you can see the visual beauty and even the visual suffering of the world. Mm -hmm. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah. I wonder too if this isn't why so many of us um, have migrated toward with great hunger the mystics, you know, mm -hmm. to want to learn mm -hmm. from them because they represent an unmediated experience of God that is embodied. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's an embodied experience of God. And it sort of reclaims the body as a location, the locus in which that kind of revelation can happen. Mm. Um, after so many years and uh, millennia of just thinking that revelation has to happen, you know, for those of us who are in a Protestant, probably more Protestant realm, but that revelation has already happened, it's done. Or and it that ended it, with the death of the last right. apostle. There oh it is. My God. Or, or that it only <laughs> happens intellectually through scripture. You know, yeah. or yes, the, yes. you might receive consolations or messages from God, but it's somehow disconnected from bodiliness mm. and being. It's not experiential, it's more intellectual. And that to me is the draw of pilgrimage that we're seeing resurge with, mm. uh, what's the one in Spain again? Someone Camino, the yeah. Camino. Yeah, where everyone seems to be going that direction because it is an embodied way of, of practicing, I, right? I must get a letter every month huh. on someone's report to me on the Camino. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we're going to keep going here with this body-spirit split conversation. Uh, with, here with a question from Angus from Ontario. My father passed away last year, and I was with him throughout the process. The departure of his spirit from his body was stark and profound. After he passed, I remember moving around his body, trying to see my dad, but I couldn't even find an angle that looked like him. Wow. Since then, I've, I have felt a deep disconnection from body and spirit. On one hand, I have never been more confident of the spirit's journey with God, but I am left saddened and confused by the disconnection of the body. I have felt that my body is just my vehicle for however long I am here, but surely there is a holiness to it that I am missing or at least not articulating. I rarely go to my father's grave, rather feeling his presence in other places, such as his workshop that I now steward. But I, I like the idea of it as a place of reflection and conversation. I'm wondering if Father Richard could address his feelings of this connection and the Catholic slash Christian response to the body-spirit divide. Boy, I hope we already in the last 15 minutes have been responding to this. Uh, we just keep circling around this mystery of embodiment. Uh, the, se the seeming departure of his spirit from his body was stark and profound. Uh, I guess those are the tears at a deathbed. That what seemed like one now seems to be totally separated. And we spend the rest of our life uh, trying to put them back together again. How does he live? Where does he live? Does he live? Uh, that's why a grief work is just one of the very best entrance ways into the spiritual journey. Because it's not a problem that you can logically solve. We were talking about it a bit in the previous recording, uh, this whole notion of, of how we, we, we have made them disconnected. So maybe I'm just repeating myself. Uh, but what I keep getting in these wonderful questions that have been sent to us is you can see in every one of them, and I'm not trying to be nice to them, they already have the beginnings of the answer. And I, I, don't, I don't know that I have it. You're on the right course. Uh, like he's finding him in the workshop. Yeah. I don't need to go to the grave. That's very New Testament, you know. Uh, although they first go to the grave, but then they find him everywhere else, even in the element of bread, in the company of people. Uh, that's the transference that I believe has to happen. So um, I don't know that he could ask for me to clarify this connection if he hadn't already experienced this connection, all I can really tell him to do is, yeah, trust it. You're right. <laughs> You're right. Uh, this is the resurrection of the body that in some ways makes the person more real, not in all ways, but in some ways, more real after death than before. Because you can't, they're with you all the time. Uh, not their body, but their spirit. And it becomes a kind of energetic field that we call embodiment. 
<laughs> uh, isn't that amazing? So, but if we have had no respect for embodiment our whole life, I bet we wouldn't access it quite so easily, uh, or long for it, or trust it, or allow it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I even remember priests when we were teenage boys uh, speaking of the genitals as the dirty parts. Don't touch your dirty parts or anybody <laughs> else's dirty parts. What? And of course, we, you just believe what these elders are saying. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about being split. From, mm. I mean, everything is physical. That's all we see. And what we're saying in the universal Christ is the respecting of that physicality in its wholeness is to see spirit. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. Mm. Not the, oh, that's just a piece of wood. I'm looking at a piece of wood in our beautiful beamed ceiling here. Um, it's not just a piece of wood. It's an epiphany into beauty, uh, into life. That all grew out of the earth. You can still see the knots on the wood where branches came out of the tree. Uh, it, so, suddenly it's a living organism that we've made into something that protects us from the elements. But uh, that's beautiful. But unless you take what we would call a contemplative moment to stop and say, it's not just a roof. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a living being that God made and yet we made. You know, when we raise the uh, bread and the wine at the beginning of the Mass, we say this prayer from the Passover meal. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness we have this wine to offer. Fruit of the vine came from God and the work of human hands. It's both. And we say the same about the bread. Uh, directly from the Passover meal, and uh, the good people say, blessed be God forever. But there, the synthesis is spoken. Uh, it's God, but it's us cooperating with one another. That's the incarnational mystery. Uh, so I hope that's some kind of uh, un, uh, inadequate response to Angus's beautiful uh, comment. I wonder why, I mean, like if we were to just for a second, suspend the idea that we were like souls in a holding vault that then got shot down to earth and then got encased in these bodies. If we could just suspend that assumption for a while and consider them all as intertwined and interconnected as the rest of reality yeah. seems to be, yes. then maybe we could see our bodies as expressions of the inner soul in other words like i think about the velveteen rabbit you know oh, where it's like how do you know that when i was young there's a beautiful <laughs> passage and i'm going to butcher it but it's like you know how do you know when things are really real they're yeah. real when they are loved and they're they fall apart as they are loved do you know what i'm talking yeah, yeah, about yeah. you've read yeah. that to your boys haven't i haven't yet actually oh, <laughs> i'm haven't? saying oh, it i'm okay. like this. <laughs> but there's something about the body that i think 
um, is deeply connected with the soul and the spirit. Otherwise, we wouldn't see these psychosomatic connections. Mm. We wouldn't see the ways mm. in which, um, you know, they're discovering how holding anger in your stomach results in certain kinds of mm. stomach cancer, you know. And all this, all this to say, what if we're here forming a soul with our body, with our spirit? What if it's all happening at the same time? And I, I, I know that's good. That's very good. I know it feels crazy I mean, to talk no, this way because it's so different than how we think. But then it makes me think: Well, if we're in the process, if we're here to incarnate all of it together, then when we think about death, we think about resurrection. Then we're manifesting that incarnation mm -hmm. just as jesus did i think about his question i no longer see my father in his body it doesn't look like him mm -hmm. and yet i'm experiencing him everywhere else mm -hmm. doesn't that sound like the story of the resurrection of jesus sure does it's like the cook on the shore yes, and the, yes, you know yes. the gardener and the mm -hmm. maybe there's something to this process that but makes us so real <laughs> that God is making us so incarnate in this world that when we die, we join God in everything, everywhere else. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, who knows, right? But that's a comforting thought for me when I think about that moment when you look at a loved one who's died and you can tell, oh, this body, this, this body is, it doesn't look like them anymore, mm -hmm. but you do experience them mm -hmm. everywhere else. Anybody trapped in a, Oh, that's just a body worldview, would not have seen Jesus as a divine figure. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's the same dilemma in seeing any other member of the body of Christ. If I'm going to insist on you're just Paul, you're just Bree, uh, I won't get very far with knowing who Paul is or who Bree is by stopping at embodiment is just a shell. Mm. Mm -hmm. And we live in a, a world where the materialist worldview, I talk about that at the end of the book, mm -hmm. really dominates so much so that uh, Christianity is finding it hard to communicate its own position because our people are so materialistic. They don't know how to put matter and spirit together. Yeah. Yeah. It's no wonder you look at the climate change crisis we're in. Very good. Go we, there. That yeah. we can't. We can't see that disconnect of the way that the way we've perpetuated this, and that Christians aren't even on the forefront of the one saying, "Hey, we have to change our entire way of participating yes. in the world because it's killing our planet." Mm -hmm. And I think about that split often as I, you know, what does it mean to raise children in a way where I want to pass on this this type of um, spirituality and theology, where it becomes a sense of wholeness mm -hmm. versus this is about getting you into heaven. <laughs> if you could bring a few friends with you, that'd be great. <laughs> but like really seeing it as a as a planetary project. Yeah, it, it reminds me of some of what we were talking about in one of the previous episodes about what if there's an eternal consequence to our actions? Maybe that's what the concepts of heaven and hell were about. But again, because we've split everything apart, we yeah. didn't see the connection of eternal consequence in this life, in in the future, uh, what we're building, what we're doing, how we're acting. I mean, matter matters. <laughs> you know, matter that, that, that phrase that you use and that others use, it's like matter matters. Why is that so difficult for us to accept? Why is it so hard? Um, uh, on that theme, uh, Leah from New York 
brings up the whole teachings of the Course in Miracles. And she says, oh. A Course in Miracles teaches that physicality is an illusion. Suffering and illness are errors in thinking and that Jesus didn't suffer on the cross because he knew I'm not a body. I have many friends who are totally dedicated to this path. They wear t-shirts with bold letters saying, I'm not a body. <laughs> My friends tell me this is truth. And she capitalized truth, uh, or, uh, all caps truth, that it's Jesus's correction to Christianity. But I'm convinced of an incarnational worldview. Can you address the enormous popularity of A Course in Miracles, which I understand to be a spiritual worldview that claims to be dictated by Jesus and the truth about God? Well, I have to start by pleading a good degree of ignorance. I didn't know The Course in Miracles taught that. I'd always heard their good teaching about forgiveness. And so I've often praised The Course in Miracles that we didn't teach forgiveness enough and they put it center stage. But remember at the end of the book where I talk about the four worldviews. If what Leah says is the case, and I have no reason to doubt it, this is what I term the spiritual worldview. I'm not a body and almost taking delight in this. Yes, I'm not limited to my body. I could agree to that. But saying I'm not my body, no, I am my body. <laughs> so it might be a stage of teaching. I mean, I think we probably all were taught early, my soul lives forever and my soul's going to go to heaven. And, yeah. and there are ways that that's important to learn, but that's early stage Christianity, uh, it seems to me. Um, when Jesus says, you know, store up things in heaven, not in this world where rust corrodes and moth consumes, it could appear that he's making that distinction. And remember, I always say you've got to start with dualistic clarity, body, soul, Uh, He's trying to get us to see the invisible, the non-tangible, but then the the final uh, mature teaching of Jesus is the two are operating as one in his body, even allowing it to be crucified and it is body that is resurrected. It's, that's, that's no small point, that his body is resurrected. So, uh, yeah, if, if what she says is true, I, I don't agree with that. I am my body, but I'm not only my body. Right. Yeah, okay. I think it's dangerous. Any, <clears throat> and I, I also, I'm not uh, familiar with A Course in Miracles, but any ideology that teaches us that suffering and bodiliness isn't real feels mm. like a dangerous foundation for a lot of the type of injustice, oppression, abuse that we see in our world. That's the perfect answer to that. Um, Yeah, I I didn't respond to that, but you did. Jesus didn't suffer on the cross because he knew I'm not my body. That's not true, I don't don't think. I suppose, too, the things that make us most human, like we've talked before about how much suffering connects us to each other, Mm. how it opens up our awareness and brings us into it, you know, uh, transformative moments like to think that you know sorry I'm sorry but like, I'm thinking about childbirth and I'm like oh no my, that suffering was real that yeah. was very real suffering mm-hmm. and I was very much in my body through that childbirth process and yet you know 
Yes, to, you to, were just saying, I'm not my body, right. I'm not my body. I'm I mean, body. you know, and I did the whole hypnobirth uh, thing, uh, ladies. Like, I, I really worked on that, like, to be deeply relaxed, all the rest of it. But the idea that we're trying to extract the messiness or suffering out of the human experience, um, when I, it just seems, it seems antithetical to this move toward healing mm, yeah. and wholeness and softening and respect and justice and yeah yeah show me a person that you think is whole who, who's also not embodied right like mm. i everyone that i mm. look up to in that way they there's mm. this full acceptance of their entire humanness the whole the whole the wholeness of body and spirit together i think whenever i i face that that distinction in a person especially in the spiritual world you kind of get the sense of they're trying to pu pull one over on me or it's a uh, bypassing to get to a, sp a spiritual truth that is no, then that, that doesn't have that weight behind it because it is so separated from the human experience. And on the other side, you meet what we unkindly call anal retentive people, uh, but rigid people. They're always deeply repressing things in their body yes. or their body right. itself. Yes always yes. I, that is so obvious at my age people who even in their body movements experience you can see the resistance you can feel the repression yeah, yeah. Well, we have a question here from rachel from lancaster pennsylvania and this will kind of continue the thread of embodiment and also how others view us and how we view ourselves in a culture that has defined the ideal as cellulite free thin and looking like less than perhaps one percent of humanity probably look how can we how can we reclaim the joy of our bodies embodying with joy and gratitude for the magnificence of very ordinary even that shows cultural even that shows cultural bias non-skinny yet fully alive and wonderful human bodies I'm probably showing my own bias. Uh, I brought over this morning, because I'm collecting a number of things, a bunch of pictures of when I was young and handsome. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's so neat not to need to be that way. Mm -hmm. So maybe we need to listen to elders more who... Uh, who know they are their body, can accept, in this case, being overweight, as I am right now, because of this dang pill I'm on. Well, probably because I eat too much, too. But, <laughs> Those pills but, are just jelly beans. <laughs> I'll keep blaming it on the pill. Uh, but why doesn't it bother me? Uh, is that laziness? And I've been asking myself that. Um, but my physical attractiveness, simply I, I know now at a much deeper level is not me. Mm. So do we need people who aren't, we used to speak of these thin women as twiggy. That's before your time. <laughs> that is a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I know long. what you're talking about. That is like a solid... <laughs> 30 Some years ago, Twiggy. I don't know <laughs> who the, the present Twiggy is, but... There's a few. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's not good. Yeah. It's not... You know, I was, uh, as you know, recently in Mexico, 
and you'd see these lovely young Mexican girls, just gorgeous. And it was so clear in that culture that as soon as they have a baby, they start broadening out, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, it was even pointed out to us since we're on Mexico, that uh, that icon of Our Lady of Guadalupe, she's a rather medium-sized woman. Uh -huh. And they said that is just affirmed. Some people have made this case <clears throat> in the whole Mexican culture. That's the ideal woman. Mm -hmm. uh, a woman who's born children and has her body to show, show for it. <clears throat> so our our model is very recent, very limited, and very condemning. It seems that part of our issue here with bodiliness is also just change. You know, we're so afraid of aging, of changing, of growing older, and I feel like society has um, created an ideal out of a young body, whether it's male or mm -hmm. feminine or mm -hmm. female or... Um, any gender, it's the it's the youth, of, you know, thing that we're looking toward, and um, just how unhealthy that is in terms yeah. of our own our own journeys of change. You know, like how much how much disrespect it shows to ourselves, to our bodiliness, to the the whole way of everything for us to somehow try to freeze time on one particular <laughs> segment of of our lives as though we could keep it that way forever. Yes. And I think kind of back to something you said, Paul, like the women that I have met in my life that are most alive and most free. And I really want to emphasize the freedom mm. because that is, that is what is absent in our culture of bodiliness or body obsession, you know, in terms of being thin or young or beautiful. We're not free when we're living from that obsession. But we when are. I meet, when I meet elder mm. women who are free from that, it's, the level of relaxation that I feel in my body and in myself and the, the, the re relaxation into beingness period no. that I feel is so profound and is such a gift. And we need so much more of that yes. yeah. as an antidote to mm. this madness. Yeah. It's, I mean, in some ways it's the gift of baldness. You know, I think oh, about thank you. I mean, Go ahead. being a young man who went bald after having long blonde hair. You know, I was often flowing. You forgot flowing, the flowing. Yeah, hair. wavy, and it was often. In, you have to bring some pictures, Paul. I should. I got to bring them to this collection. I'd love and to I'll see post them. online. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking, Richard. For you, like, when when was a time like you just, you talk about how you just don't, you don't care right now? Do you, how when did that transition happen for you when you were able to kind of say, you know what, like these standards that set by by culture just don't matter somewhere in the 60s mm. where i knew it was an impossible game to yeah. keep trying to look you know certainly when all my hair was gone and when i lost my boyish figure they say that begins at 27 or are you on the other side of 27 i yes. am yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at 27 you begin to lose your boyish figure uh but you, you can't help but want to be attracted uh, to go back to that because mm -hmm. it's what the culture admires. Mm -hmm. So men face this too. It's, mm -hmm. it's not just women. Maybe it's not put on us right. as much. Yeah. That's all. Well, can I also present a foil to this, which is also another thing that I think we can fall into. I'll use myself as an example. In my 26, 27 range, 
as I was diving headlong into contemplation in the mystics, I, I sort of vacillated from indulging in my appearance mm-hmm. to this opposite extreme of denying, where all of a sudden I thought the spiritual thing would be for me to just shave my head and mm-hmm. not care at all about how mm-hmm. I look. And in a way, which is true in some ways, but I went to this extreme, which I now lovingly call my contemplative frumpy phase, <laughs> where it was like, how can I make sure that you can't see a figure mm-hmm. under here? How can I wear baggy clothing? How can I prove to everyone that I'm so spiritual by like not wearing makeup and not caring, da 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 da. And you know, it, it, was, it was another extreme. So somewhere between indulging and denying is a middle road of accepting. <coughs> and I think for women, this is really hard because we, we, we vacillate, I think, in contemplative or spiritual circles between wanting to deny our femininity. Yes. Not just the, you know, it's, <clears throat> I get, like, we don't want, I don't want to play into cultural obsessive norms, right? Yes. But I also don't want to collapse into, like, back to my contemplative frumpy phases in a way what i was doing was denying my my femininity yeah. i was mm-hmm. trying to hide myself uh, i can't think of a catholic nun yeah. who wouldn't agree with every word mm. you just said because yeah. that's what we put on them this temporarily probably appropriate thing but imagine having to wear that your entire life mm-hmm. and even to sleep in it Denying your femininity, denying your embodiment, pretending you don't have breasts. It's just horrible. Or not wanting to look pretty for a date. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, it's Uh like, I don't want to guilt myself for putting on mascara one night. You know, it's like. Yeah. And the archetypes have been so much of the virgin or the prostitute, right? It's in in, in Christianity as those that have been like, like it's not an either or. And I'm I'm not, I know I'm in dangerous territory here, even just like naming that. But like. Oh, yeah that's been like how far apart you either fall into one category or the other. And, and we live from that. I think, I think that's part of the, the grief that I hear in Rachel's question yeah. is that we're, we're paranoid or we're, we're struggling to find the right avenue of just being in our bodies and to trust that this is good and to feel permission to express ourselves on occasion mm. to want to get dressed up or not, but not become slaves to it either. Mm. Um, I think of the work of Mirabai Star. Actually, she's she recently wrote a book about uh, yes. called Wild Mercy yes. on the the feminine path. She has some amazing passages, but in one of them, she says, uh, she says, you know what? She's like, yes, I meditate and I am one with the beloved. And sometimes I'm sorry. I care about what my ass looks like in jeans. <laughs> and you know what? It's just so human of her to admit that. Mm, sure. That when I read that, I found myself laughing and relaxing and saying, yeah. Let's make sure that we hold freedom mm. all the way through and find that middle mm. path of acceptance as hard as it well is. Well put. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of acceptance. <laughs> Are you looking at the notes? No, I didn't even realize this was coming up next. Um, Ernie from Ontario, uh, Canada. Wait, is that California? Yeah. Ontario, right? California. Okay, yeah. so Ernie mm. from Ontario, California is asking this very question on acceptance. He says, do we have something that is built in that distracts and blocks us from accepting that we are fully accepted? And if we do, how do we get rid of it? I think that is so real. And that's why Augustine, who had a lot of sexual self-hatred and guilt, coined that unfortunate phrase, original sin. There, there seems to be something inherent 
in the human being that obsesses over its imperfection, which is an ego trip. What, what, what makes me think I, in my separateness, could be perfect? And really, what I would say, the only way to overcome it is union, not private moral perfection, but union with the whole body of Christ. We are holy. We are good. We are Christ. Uh, it's an act of solidarity with the whole that allows you to accept your, your own privately being just a part. I'm a part. I'm not the whole. But our individualism here works against us again because we want to independently be uh, totally acceptable. So it is, it's an ego trip. I really think it is. Uh, once we let go of uh, that grain of wheat, as Jesus puts it, that set of boundaries, then my wholeness is in my connectedness, not my private perfection not my private worthiness. So he says, is it built in us? Well, I've called it the fly in the ointment that there does seem to be a, a problem in the human psyche, the human soul, that sets us up for the drama, for the conflict, for the necessary tension. Yet it is very hard to accept that we are fully acceptable. And I've met very gorgeous women and good-looking men, intelligent men, intelligent women who suffer from it just as much. And those of us who are more ordinary say, well, sir, surely not you. They do. In fact, they almost have a race more <laughs> to cover it up because they know that everybody projects onto them this, oh, you've got it all together. And Rich, can I ask you, what does that look like for you as somebody who is, people do look up to, um, and knowing and that those projections onto, come onto you, how yeah. do you handle that, knowing that that acceptance is not the acceptance that you're necessarily mm -hmm. seeking? That's been a problem in much of my public life for 30, 40 years, that both people who hate me hate me for the, there's probably some good reasons to hate me, but the, the one they picked out really isn't it. It's their own problem projected onto me. But on the other side, those who love me and think I'm this little God, if they only knew how imper... So you learn, you've heard me say this before, you learn by the middle of life not to take either projection too seriously. People who think you're greater than you are and people who think you're a total hypocrite, fool, idiot. Um, neither of them are people who usually know me. And I think that's why we all long for someone who knows the real me, warts and all, and can still believe I'm lovable. Don't we all, all long for that? Uh, without that, I don't know there's ever grace to move ahead. And we start with that. I certainly started the, with that with my mom and dad. So I got off to a good start. That the whole room lit up when I ran into the room. You know, little Dickie is here. We're all happy and we pass him around and, and kiss him. Uh, but then you spend the rest of your life 
wanting that moment to be repeated. (laughs) Someone else to pass me around and kiss me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But it, it doesn't really... You don't have to constantly have a perfect mirror in your life. It's enough if it's there a few times. If you've never had it. Now, I have met people who, because they never had it, even from their parents, do feverishly search for it from God. I have met some people like that. They're wonders of nature. But for most of us, we need the mirroring from one other human being that fully accepts us in our lowliness, as Mary says in the Magnificat. Uh, they, uh, people who think I'm wonderful, who don't know who I am, it really doesn't do anything for me. Do you understand? <laughs> but like you on the staff, who've seen how ordinary I am, when you still put up with me or like me, that means much more. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's true for all of us, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about it too, when you said the baby, my, my son is seven months old now, and like the moment... I walk into the room. He just starts smiling. Oh God, that must make you. Happy. And you just think, oh, I'm, you know, I haven't done anything. I, <laughs> Pretty I, awesome. Yeah, I provide a lot less than his mother Your does. Daddy. You know what I mean? But I just walk and he just starts getting giddy. And it's he, that he knows. I don't. Yeah, I love what you said too. But like that, it doesn't have to happen all the time. No, it does. It's enough that it, it happens where you where you, you have that felt sense of mm. I am fully accepted just as I am, mm. and that could be enough fuel in the tank to go through a lot of, uh, walk through a lot of swamps and and dark areas. But only the contemplative mind will receive that, be imprinted by that, and own that. Mm -hmm. If you're just, oh yeah, you like me, you have to taste love. You have to enjoy love. You have to let that love be imprinted on you. I think too, experiencing forgiveness, Mm -hmm. like the fullness Mm -hmm. of that moment, like, and, and nowhere more for me than from my own children. You know, I had a moment last week where uh, I was feeling pretty good of my, uh, like you were, I'm feeling pretty like, oh, I'm a pretty great parent. My son, Soren, who's nine, was hyperventilating about something, not literally, but just mm-hmm. being dramatic and freaking out about some homework. And he's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get it. Oh, I don't, I don't. And so I like walked him through this breathing exercise to slow him down, to calm him down. And we're doing this breathing exercise. And I'm like, man, I am winning as a mom right now. Like I'm doing so great. And right in that moment, as he's starting to calm down, Rowan, my six-year-old, who's you know on the other on the other bed in the room, he goes, "Mom, you know what sound you make when you're frustrated?" And I was like, "Uh, no." And he goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then he did this gesture with his hands outstretched and his eyes up at the ceiling, oh. and then he kept doing it. He did it like four more times. And it was so humiliating to realize like, oh yeah. How they've got all your mannerisms they've got, down. They can't, they've got me down and they're seeing all my crap. And it just, as I put them down that night, like I was so embarrassed. And then I actually just like was giving them hugs and I was telling them, I'm so sorry that you see me frustrated sometimes. I'm sorry that I, you know, I'm sorry that I'm not um, more patient or more kind. And the way that they receive that and look at me with love and say, it's okay, mama. See, You know, I have hard days too, mama. It's okay. And I'm just like... Isn't that beautiful? That experience of of forgiveness, that I think, yeah, that helps me. I mean, and it doesn't feel like I can get to that acceptance within myself, but when I see it in them, I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. There it is. 
Uh, that they know you're ordinary and yet you're good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to shift gears a, a tiny bit here to talk about a question from Andy from Atlanta, Georgia. Andy says, I'm a lay minister and I encounter people who are so focused on issues of sexual immorality. Talk about the evils of secularism and the sexual revolution and how we need to uphold the church teaching on these matters. I never know how to respond. How does this, which is a, a concern for certain morals, fit within the contemplative context? I know I've already quoted it twice, but let me do it once more. Uh, I find Ken Wilber's four-part distinction so helpful. What he's talking about here is the first stage and the first necessary and good stage, which he calls cleaning up. Without an appropriate sense of boundaries, self-definition, and even uh, the ability to say no to yourself. We call it the sacred no in men's work. Uh, uh, that's what early stage morality needs to be. If you can never say no to yourself, you actually lose respect for yourself. <laughs> you, you do. Uh, if you constantly give in, you say, is there anything here that has some kind of inherent value? That's the meaning of the, the necessary sacred no. So the, his, his parishioners are are right in that, that we need to insist on a, on a basic cleaning up. It's those people who go further. Like Paul says, I was the best of the Pharisees. He starts there with a kind of rigidity, I'm sure, about all the Jewish laws. But then as you continue to grow up, you realize purity codes, and that's the beginning stages of almost every religion. Don't touch this, don't go there, don't uh, align yourself with that kind of person. Uh, that, that, that is not yet love. It's the cr creating of the self, what I call the first half of life. So you gotta do that. People who create an ego are most prepared to let go of an ego. That's such a paradox. Uh, so you wanna affirm those folks but you better not make that the be-all and the end-all of Christianity. Or you get into Puritanism, moralism, we used to call it in Catholicism, Jansenism. Uh, it's, it's all about purity codes. And I think we can safely say, Jesus doesn't waste any time on purity codes. He assumes, well, I, I, you took care of that in grade school, in high school. High school especially, probably. Learning the sacred no, learning appropriate boundaries, you know. Uh, you have a right to protect your body and you don't invade other people's bodies. Now I know that's, that takes the form of commandment, which is the only thing a 17-year-old can understand, filled with hormones. It's a, you may not do that. It, as we, it's a mortal sin. And uh, now we say, well, you know, are we really upsetting God? Probably not. Uh, but now we see that there's some real good social, cultural reasons. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
So maybe your neighbors need you not to do that. <laughs> and maybe you need not to do that. So we call it sin perhaps too easily. So cleaning up is the starting place. Those who do that well will be most prepared to go on to growing up. And that's most of your middle years. Starting, I hope, in college and going through the 40s, where you're just learning more and more about what works, what's helpful, what's real, what harms, what wounds. Um, we go down all kind of dead ends. We over-identify with all kind of movements and groups. This is the only answer, this one or that one. And uh, usually the waking up, you're ready for the waking up around then. And we talked about Pentecostalism on the first day. Yeah. See, there, were, there was, a, there was a, a waking up experience, but what they had to do was go back and clean up and grow up. And most of them weren't willing to do that. Mm. They thought, well, I'm awakened. Right. <laughs> you, you need all stages. Mm. The, the easy sequence is the one I named, or Ken Wilber named cleaning up, growing up, then you're ready to know what waking up means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're better than everybody else, all right? It means I and the Father are one and it's completely a gift of grace that is given to you, which then thrusts you naturally, not by guilt, not by shame, not by obligation, not by duty, thrusts you into the fourth stage of showing up. My God, I've been given a gift of freedom and love. And with this kind of freedom and love, the only thing you want to do is hand it on to other people. Mm. Uh, so that's probably more an answer than yeah, Andy wanted. It's, it's so helpful because I think culturally we're obsessed with waking up but don't want to deal with the other stages. Right. And especially mm. I feel like in our, in our millennial generation, Everybody wants the quick access route to mysticism and transcendent, transcendent experiences without the discipline of, of uh, cleaning up and awareness of morality. Uh, uh, the capacity, which you said, if you don't say no to yourself, you lose respect for yourself. Mm -hmm. There is no discipline. It seems, I shouldn't be so extreme, but it seems like there's such a lack of discipline oh, in yeah. learning detachment or yeah. learning self-restraint. Mm. So then it just becomes this everything goes. I know. Just yeah. find your bliss. Like, oh, I'm just going to have my, I'm just going to, you know, yeah. find my transcendent experience of oneness and and then treat everybody like shit, you know? Right. It's like, and then be a terrible person. But look at me, I, you know, yes. I, med I, I have my meditation and my, you know, transcendent sure. moments. Yeah. I was lucky. I, my older brother one time gave me the advice of, to make sure that you say your no to make room for the bigger yes. No, so, that's lovely. So your no's help create that space mm. to say yes. That's lovely. And it's it's a different mm. spin on discipline for me that has really helped, hopefully, for me in a way that, that has created more potential. Yeah. And you talk about, Richard, that, you know, again, back to our comment about if this is a relational universe that we're swimming in, then embodiment has to be about right relationship. Mm. It has to be about sensing the connectivity to the whole and living out of respect to that connectivity in some way. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like Josh from Portland um, asks a question that has to do with that connectivity um, as we wrap up here. He says, my question for Father Richard is about his reference to the sacredness of the world, 
environment, humans, animals. He mentions respecting, protecting, and loving it. I was just curious if he was subtly referencing、mm. vegetarianism or veganism, since it impacts global gas emissions, poverty, and animal abuse. And I think his question here is, you know, pertaining、sure. to the bodies that aren't human, and what is, how do we need to be more responsible in our choices toward that relationality to the whole? Once you learn the art of union and connection, it doesn't really matter what you're connected to; they all serve the same function. And your connection to an animal, or to the earth, or to a plant, is serving the same function for your enlightenment as to another human being. Now,、uh, because we haven't emphasized that. People think the only meaning of the gospel is to love other human beings.、Uh, I, I guess I didn't have veganism, vegetarianism directly in mind, but I think that's a very good corollary. I don't think we want to now make a commandment out of it. That's a, that, then you go back to the purity code level, you know. But that some enlightened people are going to come to that conclusion. That I just don't like ingesting animals <laughs>、uh, because of the whole impact it creates. Yeah, the, yeah. Yes, what what、yeah. it's doing to the planet、yeah. uh, by having so many cattle. For I mean, their analysis is invariably right.、Uh-huh. This can't continue if the world population is going to increase the way it's increasing.、Uh, so he's right. I've always made a point of why didn't Jesus ever once emphasize diet diet at all? I think because he saw the danger of making it into a purity code. But I can't believe that he wouldn't have eaten eaten very uh, responsibly, uh, caringly, contemplatively. But just don't make a religion out of it. That's all. By which you will judge other people. And I must say, very happily, most of the friends, in fact, all of them that I have,、uh, seem so free about it. You know, I'll apologize. Now I don't eat red meat, but because of my hypoglycemia, I need protein at most meals. So I have chicken or fish, and I never feel judgment from my vegetarian friends. And I don't even need to explain it to him.、Um, I think that the incarnational worldview that you're inviting us into helps us to feel a greater sense of embodiment and presence to our bodies in all of these ways that we've been talking about. But one that comes to mind as we're speaking about food、um, is the right relationship to food, but also the right relationship to pleasure and joy、mm, and abundance.、Good. Um, yes. And how much that is also a part of、mm-hmm. being embodied.、Mm-hmm. Um, and as our closing question, I have a memory. I don't know if you have a memory like this, but I have a memory of sitting on the beach of Alexandria in in Egypt, eating a, the world's most perfect orange. And I don't know why. Every time I think、mm. about this, the, the sensation of pleasure of eating. I can put myself right back there on that beach, and I'm telling you that orange was like eating the sun. And <laughs>、mm. so I'm just curious, Richard, as we do, I have such a moment. As we close off this episode on embodiment, do you have a moment of deep joy and pleasure in tasting food that connects you in a way to everything? You know, what just flashed into my mind was 
when I was giving a retreat, I'm back in Japan. Uh, and I'm back in my little room. The window is open. And I'm looking at eye level at blowing grasses. Mm. I, I can still... I think it was the sensitivity of the Japanese culture that made me more sensitive and everything is coming to life. Maybe it's where I'm at. I'm in my 40s then. But I, I just literally wanted to grab a clump of that grass and eat it and ingest it. It, it was so beautiful. It was so wonderful. Uh, it was so it. <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm a part of it and it's a part of me. I don't think I did actually, but I, I imagine myself doing it uh, and uh, wanted to do it in a way. I didn't deny myself. I finally got to the point where I could ingest its beauty without really eating it. Mm. Yeah. It's like tantric sex, you know, I just... <laughs> <laughs> without really eating it. <laughs> you better eliminate that from the mouth. <laughs> That's so good. That'll be that episode title. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you're you, welcome. Richard. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.